Our reading of Scripture for this sermon comes to us from John's first letter. Uh, So please turn with me to 1 John chapter 5. We will read the last two verses there. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding so that we might know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. This is the word of the Lord. Let us spend a minute in prayer. Father, I thank you for loving us enough that you gave Jesus Christ as a light amidst our darkness. I ask that you would enlighten our hearts and minds to find your will through your word this afternoon. Lord, we praise things in your holy name. Amen. So this afternoon, we find ourselves a little bit out of order, right? A few days uh, a few days ago, my Old Testament professor reminded our class that the books of the Bible are not written, are, are not presented in chronological order, right? Nor do the chapters, even within a book, necessarily follow some logical sense of time and order, right? The book of Job, for example, should come before Exodus, and, and Malachi comes inside Second Chronicles, and First and Second Thessalonians were written before Romans or Corinthians. And the last book of the New Testament just might not be Revelation. There are some scholars who claim that it is Third John. Some say it is even First John. But what I'm trying to get at uh, is is that there's some claim that our two verses that we're going to look at this this afternoon might very well be the last words ever written in the Bible. I don't know if I'm convinced of this fact, but I find it interesting, and and it's something I think that is worth noting and worth thinking about. So today we find ourselves at the very end of the Apostle John's first letter. We are left uh, unsure of his specific audience that he's speaking to, but we do know that this letter was written to fellow believers, Christians, at the end of the first century. But why is it that we find ourselves here today? If you recall, we've been going through the Westminster Shorter Catechism, and today we find ourselves at the fifth question. And it reads this, Are there more gods than one? If you answered no, then you would be correct, right? But the the Westminster divines who who wrote the catechism were a bit more eloquent in their responses, Uh, so they replied, There is but one only, the living and true God. My goal this afternoon is to open the Word of God and investigate this claim, right? This claim of the one, this claim of the living and true God. And then once we have that information, we have to we have to ask, okay, if that's the case, if there is one living and true God, so then what? There is but only one, the living and true God. If you haven't already, please open up to First John chapter 5. And while you're doing that, I want to tell you a little bit of a story before we get to our text again this morning. Once upon a time, long, long ago, there lived a preacher. And after decades of service, uh, persecution and exile and suffering and torture, and, and plenty of times of great joy, I imagine, as well, this preacher sat down and he took out a pen and ink to teach and encourage the children of the Lord. 
He was really pretty old in his years. And by this time in his life, he considered just about all the rest of the saints in the world little children. Right? Pastor Mark talked to us about children this morning, but in context of this afternoon, little children will be the saints, those who are the children of God the Father. And as he began writing to his friends, his pastor took all that he had learned through uh, learned of living with Christ and being with Christ, plus another 50 years of ministry. And he took all of that and he boiled it down to its bare essentials. And I'm sure his voice was, well, was weak and frail and he could no longer speak to thousands like he used to. But his voice, which was written in ink on that paper, was clear and straightforward. And his written voice was soft. But earnest, it was pleading for his readers to remain strong in their faith. And because of the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the Apostle John's words were made eternal. And it's my pleasure to read them to you this afternoon. You see, a dying man's last words are often quite important. Right? You see that in the movies, but we will often go to great lengths, right, in order to remember what they have to say. When our Savior said, it is finished on the cross, he breathed his last breath and said, it is finished. Right? Those words stick out to us as having this incredible theological significance. Right? And they might not have been the most important words that Jesus ever said, but they were momentous. They carried weight. And as Stephen was dying, and in a prayer he said, Lord, lay not this sin in their charge. Solomon, likewise, at the conclusion of his book uh, of Ecclesiastes, wrote this. He said, Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. We've got Joshua and Moses and Joseph and Jacob, and all these men had strong, poignant last words as well. And here in our text, John, the beloved disciple of Christ, right, the son of thunder, records perhaps his last words at least some of his last words, to the church. Let us read verses 20 and 21 again. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. So this afternoon, our charge is... uh, is to open the Word of God and find this one God, to find this living God, this true God that our catechism claims, to find that in this text. And I propose that we're going to find all three of these points here at the end of 1 John. And our application today will come directly out of the text as we look at verse 21 and discover how we can uh, keep ourselves from the worship of false gods first part of our catechism answer tells us there is but only one God. On the surface, this might seem uh, like a bit silly in this, in, in this day and age, right? If we were to look at the entire planet right now, we would find that about two-thirds of the world's population claim allegiance to a monotheistic religion, right? Whether that be Christianity or Islam or Judaism, accounts for about two-thirds of the world's population. And, they, and these religions claim that there is only one God, However, I think if we probed a little bit deeper, I think we'd find that polytheism, or the belief in many gods, is actually a bit more prevalent than you might think. 
Right? Relativism in our day is, is this whatever you believe is cool. Right? You worship the God of the Bible? Great. Right? You worship Allah? Cool. You believe in karma? Right? That, that's, that's pretty neat. Right? Are you Mormon? I mean, that's, that's a bit weird, but, but, but God's he's great, right? Buddha? It's legit. Right? Our modern society uh, seems to lack a spine, and they've got a complete inability to reject false gods. And that is, I believe in itself, that is a belief in many gods. Because if you stand for none, you must be open to all. And friends, our confession, our Bible demands that there is not all. No, there is but one, the only living and true God. And then there's this matter of our own selfishness. Because at the end of the day, this whole life thing is, isn't it just about us and how good that we can be, right? Like you, you want a big house. Okay, work hard. You want to drive a nice car, work even harder, right? You want that perfect marriage or that perfect vacation for your family. You want to be the, the boss at work, right? Work even harder. And I don't know about you, but I often find myself thinking about me and all the things that I want out of life. What does the Bible say about that? Paul says that he counts it all a loss to knowing Jesus. Christ says that there is no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's own friends. The Bible says that this life is not about me. But this world wants us to worship ourselves. The creature over worshiping the creator. Worshiping the creature is nothing short of idolatry. It is false allegiance and leads to a belief in many gods. And then we can look at history, right? We know, we know for sure that a majority of the civilizations throughout time have worshipped many gods, right? The, the ancient Near East had gods uh, that demanded consistent and really gruesome sacrifices. And we learned, uh, we, we learned growing up in school about the Roman gods and the Greek gods, right? They had their gods of the sun and the moon and the stars and the sea and the gods of fertility, right? And of the harvest, and then there's the, uh, the hieroglyphics in Egypt, right? These ancient pictures depict uh, the Egyptians worshiping all sorts of gods as well. Polytheism isn't something new. It's been around in different forms for a very, very long time. So belief in one God might not be as normal, uh, might be more normal than we first believe. What does this have to do with our text, right? And, and, and the original audience that John was writing his letter to, right? We know that the first century church, um, they didn't worship images or statues of other men. But towards the end of the first century, the church was experiencing a growing divide among the Christian community. Right In his own letter, John spoke about these false teachers over and over again. Right, These false teachers were denying uh, that Jesus, uh, they were denying him as the Christ in chapter 2. They were denying that Jesus was the Son of God. They did not believe that Christ, right, this, this holy Christ or this God could descend, a perfect God could descend to earth and take on this sinful human flesh because this, this flesh is dirty. Right? And so these beliefs were the tenets uh, the tenets of the faith found in this early Gnosticism. And this faction of false prophets that John is writing about claimed to have this special knowledge. And they were pulling Christians away from the church. 
They believed in this supreme God. But then there, was this, there were also lesser gods and flawed gods, and that's where the, the Hebrew God comes in and, and Jesus come in. They were these lesser gods. There were many gods to the Gnostics. And after spending several years in ministry with Christ and decades proclaiming the gospel afterwards, John was watching the people that he loved. He was watching the people that he had cared for leave the church and, and chase after this false knowledge. They were worshiping the creature, not the creator. And in his final words to the church here in our passage, John is pleading for Christians to be strong and, and be courageous and hold firmly to the faith that they profess in the one God of this universe. There is but only one, only the true and living God. There's not only one God, but our catechism answer states this morning that he is also living. Right? Please look with me again at verse 20. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that they might know him who is true. John spends much of this letter, uh, much of his letter pointing back to Christ, right? Christ, the Son of God, who has come and has given an understanding so that we might know him who is true. Our God is not just this creator God who sits on a throne and he watches the, un- the world just kind of unfold in misery. I mean, what a tiny and hateful God this would be. I mean, have you seen the current state of man? You'd have to live under a rock to not see the hate and the brutality and the foolishness of man in the world today. In one of his sermons about 50 years ago, Martin Lloyd-Jones spends a little bit of time thanking God that he's a preacher uh, in this day and age and not 100 years ago, not 100 years prior. He says that the church in the 1800s had forgotten that Satan was the God of this world as they were so far removed from war and great calamity. He exclaimed, but today, today it should be painful obvious to all of us with the things that mankind has experienced in the past hundred years, the many great wars serve as a reminder that we are surrounded by evil powers and forces. For it is amongst this darkness that mankind yearns for light. The only answer to this great evil is found here in verse 20, right? That God has loved us so much that he left the comfort of his throne to gift us with this understanding. And that's huge. The Bible tells us that there is none righteous, no, not one who seeks after God. And this, right? And it is this sin that separates us from a holy and perfect God. This also points to our inadequacy to seek him. Because Scripture tells us that we are dead in our own sin. And we are unable to move towards that which is holy. Right? Because a dead man can't do anything but perfectly lie there perfectly still. Right? And do absolutely nothing. There's good news. Our Heavenly Father does not sit back on His throne and watch us destroy ourselves. The Apostle John tells us in our text this morning that He is the one who provides a great understanding. The Son of God has come to give us this understanding, an understanding that saves, an understanding uh, that we might know him. And this text screams of a living God. He is the good shepherd who loves and he cares and he is active with his sheep. 
What is this understanding that God has provided for his people? Right? The Apostle John experienced this understanding on the, on, on the day of Pentecost. Right? He was there. There were many people gathered in the upper room after Christ had ascended, and they were waiting as God had instructed them to do. Right? He said, I will pour out my spirit upon you, and then you will be my witnesses. And you cannot do it without this gift I'm going to give you. And then in that upper room, the gift came. And they began to witness. And the prophecy was fulfilled. So the Holy Spirit is the gift of the Lord Jesus Christ. God, the living God, gives us his spirit. The spirit is the gift of the Father to the Son as the triumphant mediator and redeemer and savior. And Jesus in turn gives this gift of the Holy Spirit to us, to his people. We know, says John, that the Son of God has come and has given us the gift of the Holy Spirit. And it is only through this gift of the Holy Spirit that we can have or, or any spiritual knowledge or understanding of God. Did you catch that? Like, what, what you and I need is understanding. If this world is under control of the great deceiver, and we are uh, utterly helpless when it comes to being face-to-face to, face with Satan. The one thing that we need is knowledge and enlightenment. Let me put it this way. Are you surprised at the state of our world right now? Does it shock you when you turn on the news? Are you blown away that this world is how it is? Right, That people can go on living their lives carefree when people on the other side of the world are being separated from their families. Children are being murdered in the streets and not knowing where to turn or where to hide. It's, it, it's an awful thing. And yet that's our current reality. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this, How do you explain that in the face of so many tragic possibilities, the world can laugh and joke and enjoy itself and be apparently so carefree? What is the explanation? Friends, there's only one explanation. And that's that the world's understanding has been darkened. Some are staring death and suffering in the face. While others of us go on about their day without a care in the world. Right? We've been lulled in this false sense of security. Right? We're okay, right? I'm good. You're, you're good. We're, we're here. We're safe, right? The Bible says that this is possible as we've been blinded and fooled by Satan. King Solomon was perhaps one of the wisest men who ever lived, and he was bewildered by this phenomenon of evil. He said, Such a man may toil in his seeking to understand such evil, yet he will not find out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find out. Solomon's despair ultimately points to an even greater understanding that is to come. And this great understanding has come, as we see in our text this morning. It has come so that we might know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Do you have this understanding? It is only after that we receive this gift of the Holy Spirit that we understand. And without this gift, we're left wandering around in the darkness. Because we are dead in our trespasses. We are dead in our sin until the Holy Spirit enables us to see and understand that we have life in God's Son, Jesus Christ. If you understand this, praise God. But if you're left still wondering, don't wait. 
Don't wait another minute. Right? Our God is not a God of confusion. He willingly offers this understanding to those who genuinely ask for it. If you have questions, come ask them. If you earnestly desire this understanding, lift that desire up to the Lord. You can do that yourself and pray for wisdom from our Heavenly Father, for He loves you and He cares for you. He's a living God who is active and He is stirring our hearts towards Him. We gathered together today on this, the Lord's Day, to praise God for this gift of understanding. And so let us also pray for the courage to share this hope to our children, to share this hope to our neighbors and friends as we look forward to Hope Sunday. Praise God, the one God, the living and the true God. Our third point this morning does not need a lot of explanation. Uh, so we're not going to spend too much time here, right? But our catechism answered today, uh, it boasts of a one living and true God. Look back with me at verse 20 once again. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. So what does it mean to know that God is true? Before answering that question, we should actually read just a little bit further in verse 20. Look with me at the text again. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true in His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Calvin addresses this um, verse in his commentary on First John, and he says, The meaning is this, that when we have Christ, we enjoy the true and eternal God, for nowhere else is He to be sought. All right, so 500 years ago, Calvin was arguing against false teachers that claimed that Jesus uh, was not one with God, uh, the Father, yet he was, just, he was just created by God, right? And, and he was this holy man. Does that sound familiar? Earlier we learned that John, when he's writing this letter, was dealing with the, heresy of the, church, uh, the heresies that were in the first century. Right? 1,500 years after John wrote this letter, Calvin was still def- dealing with this false claim. And 500 years after Calvin, we are still faced with a culture who acknowledges the existence of Christ, but they refuse to call him God. I would argue that John and Calvin are both making uh, the claim that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, the true God, who has come to take away the sins of the world. Calvin goes on to say that the origin of life is indeed the Father, but the fountain from which we are to draw it is Jesus Christ. Perhaps I could try it a little more simply, right? Jesus Christ is God. He's not the Father, but he proceeds from the Father. Right? We, we recited the Nicene Creed this morning, and it says this, the, uh, Jesus Christ is the only begotten Son of God, begotten of his Father before all worlds, God of God, Light of light, very God of very God. Growing up in the Anglican tradition, uh, we said true God of true God. Begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. And he suffered and was buried. And on the third day, he rose again, according to the scriptures. And he ascended into heaven and he is seated at the right hand of the father. And he shall come again in glory to judge both the living and the dead. 
whose kingdom shall have no end. Jesus Christ is the second person of the Holy Trinity, right? That is made up of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. How do we know this? It's really quite simple. Jesus, uh, I think Mark actually asked me uh, this a week or two ago, and we were going through the confession, right? How do you know these things? He's trying to prepare me for my exams that are coming up. How do we know that Jesus is God? He told me it's really quite simple. Jesus himself claimed to be God, right? He told the Jewish leaders that truly, truly, I say to you that before Abraham was, I am. You see, the name I am was, was this name that God had given himself when he first communicated with Moses in Exodus, way back in Exodus chapter three. And God replied, I am who I am. And so when Jesus claims to be this, I am, he was, it was so offensive to the Jews that we read in God's, John's gospel that they picked up stones and they were ready to kill him. You see, blasphemy, claiming to be God, was punishable by death. So the Jewish leaders who were there understood the extent of Jesus' claims. And they were so angry that they would eventually kill him for it. So if Jesus claims to be God, and God is God, are there two gods? Our catechism gives us a great biblical answer. It says, No. There is but one only, the living and true God. So now what? We've established that there is uh, one God, and he is a living God, and he is a true God. So now what are we supposed to do with this great understanding? Let's turn in our Bibles once again as we read the end of our passage this morning in verse 21. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. You ever ended a letter like this? What a great way to end a letter, right? Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Let's go back, go back to the beginning of the sermon and put this sentence in a little bit of context, right? John is an aging man, right? He's reaching the end of his life, and he pins this letter as a warning and an encouragement to his brothers and sisters in Christ. And with his final stroke of his pen, he writes, Little children, keep yourselves away from idols. First off, we probably should address the obvious here uh, since we even talked about children this morning. But several times throughout John's letter, John addresses the people that he's writing to as little children. Right? This isn't a jab at their intellect or a sign of their being foolishness or young and silly. Right? This is a term of endearment. For John, right? John saw himself and the whole church as children of God, the Father. And sometimes I think helicoptering into passages like this, like what we're doing, going through the catechism and bouncing around the Bible can leave us a little bit confused on some of these things. We can at least put that aside and we can go on to the actual confusing part of this verse. Once again, I want to remind you that, uh, Christians, that John is writing, uh, writing to people who are not worshiping statues or idols formed from wood or brass or gold or anything fancy. They were, they were guilty of worshiping the creature instead of the creator. When people reject the one true God, they do not stop worshiping altogether. Right? They're merely redirecting their religious affections elsewhere. And I think that we in the church have a tendency to worship our own ideas. Right? We, we, t- we sometimes worship our own notions about God or our feelings about God. Right? I, I don't really feel that God... I mean, 
I don't feel like God would really be a God of wrath. I mean, he, he loves us, right? So how could he do these? I don't know about that Old Testament stuff. It just, it's, it's not, we read in the New Testament that God is, God is good. He is love, right? We, we can helicopter in and bring our own ideas into the text and write off other things. And when we do that, we are ultimately worshiping ourselves. We're saying, forget this word of God thing, right? We're, uh, because we, in our hearts, think we know what is true. And Reformed pastor Dick Lucas actually writes about this. He says this, Satan's masterpiece is a sophisticated form of Christianity that is agreeable and acceptable to the modern mind, but in reality is empty to the power of God, and therefore it is idolatry. Right? We cannot let our thoughts, let our feelings dictate our knowledge of God. Right? That's exactly what the serpent did in the Garden of Eden. Right? He slithered on his belly and he approached Adam and Eve and made them question uh, the words of God. Right? Now, did God really tell you to, to, uh, not to eat of that tree? I mean, he just doesn't want you to, to know. He doesn't want you to know everything. Right? And this is the great deceiver's goal. It's his M.O. It's what he did in the Garden of Eden, and it's what he did in, uh, when John was writing this letter 2,000 years ago, and it's what he is still doing to this day. And it works pretty well because he's still doing the same thing. The great deceiver's goal is to turn our eyes away from the Lord and to turn our eyes away from the truth found in his word. And he wants to turn our thoughts inwards towards ourselves. You see, we cannot worship this uh, creature without turning our worship away from the Lord. And John knows this. And John understands this, which is exactly why, with the last stroke of his pen, he writes to remind us, let us not be a people that give up. Let us, not, let us not be a people who worship the creature. Let us be a people who worship the one, the living and the true God. And I pray that you too would come to this understanding. Amen. Let us pray.